Good morning, everybody. Well, if you weren't awake when you got here, you should be awake by now with all of the uh, the uh, wonderful praise that uh, we've been singing this morning. My job is to keep you awake, <laughs> which isn't always as easy when you're the speaker. Just one item of uh, um, secretarial stuff before I get started. The men's prayer breakfast will be next Saturday here at the chapel from 9 until 10.30. We'll have that here next, uh, next Saturday. But we're continuing on in the Believe series, in the book that we've been studying. And I've been tasked to speak on self-control. How many of you remember those Lay's potato chip commercials? I bet you can't eat just one. I think they had kids. I think even Mark Messier, the hockey player, was involved with those commercials. But they never, ever said, one what? One chip? One bag of chips? Was it one plain chip? But I like barbecue chips, so then that doesn't apply. Was it one serving of chips? They never really said one what. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to get on the justification train when it comes to something like self-control? I can just imagine the station master calling out on the track, All aboard for the justification train leaving track 9. Leaving four, I can't do this. Why should I have to? It's too hard. Everybody else is doing it and all points in between. You know, there's no shortage of excuses when it comes to lack of self-control. Well, what is self-control? I guess if we're going to talk about it, we better understand what it is. There's a key verse in this chapter, and it's found in Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 to 13. If you have your Bible, open it there. We'll refer to this verse a few times during the message this morning. But it reads, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the definition of self-control really comes down to simply not letting your thoughts, desires, and actions get the better of you. This definition is really no different in the secular world than it is in the biblical sense. Under the umbrella of self-control exists both the secular world and the biblical world, and that is controlling our thoughts, desires, and actions. But what separates the two worlds? The secular world and the biblical world is the motivation for practicing self-control. Is what is being controlled and to what depth and how it comes about or how do we practice self-control. Now, I believe that God calls Christians to a higher standard of self-control than what the world demands. And what I mean by that is, it's not only an outward self-control that God calls us to uphold but it's also an inward or spiritual self-control. In Matthew chapter 5, there's some very relevant verses that pertain to our inward self-control. It's a wonderful chapter that calls to light a lot of, not inconsistencies, but it really nails down what God wants from us in our spiritual sense. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And a little farther down in chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. At this point, if I was listening to Jesus and he starts the sentence with, you have heard it said, I'd be doing this. Because he cuts right to the chase. And a lot of times what he says burns with inside of us. Jesus in his teaching went beyond the outward moral code that requires self-control for an orderly society. We have a moral code. It's called a criminal code. And a lot of our criminal code started off in the Bible. The world and our society wants to forget that. But that's where it started from. And our own criminal code demands selfward control on the outside. To assault or to murder somebody would bring about criminal charges. But it's not a crime to hate someone. It only becomes a crime when you act on that hatred, according to our criminal code. But the biblical self-control goes way beyond our outward actions and words. God in his wisdom knows that to be spiritually healthy, we need to have an inward self-control. Because he knows that it's only a matter of time before what's inside of us spews out and becomes an outward lack of self-control. One example of inward hatred spewing out is revenge. TV shows and movies are ripe and full of plots glorifying revenge. Making revenge look like something you want to do. These shows and movies are all about getting even. Under the name of justice, but getting even, nevertheless, for somebody who has wronged us. I once heard somebody say that revenge is about the same as you taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. What's meant by that is no matter how much revenge you extract from a person, it's never going to be enough to satisfy that inward hatred within yourself. If you seek revenge, you want the person to suffer. You want them to suffer, you want them to die, but if they die, well, then they can't continue suffering, so that's not good enough either. Revenge is a never-ending circle of hatred on your part. You'll always feel the other person has not suffered enough. But what did Jesus have to say about what our desires should be towards those who wrong us? Again, Matthew chapter 5 boils it all down to this. Verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ouch. That's where Christianity really diverges from our secular world. As Christians, we're called to love those who hate us, who despise us, who persecute us. Christianity is not about intolerance. It's about love. Not only does this self-control, this inward self-control benefit yourself as it releases you from that inward hatred that like a festering ulcer will get the better of you. But loving somebody who has wronged you also has the effect of really messing with that person. If someone knows they've taken advantage of you, they expect you to be unhappy with them, even despised with them. 
But if you show concern for that person and concern for their well-being, you catch them completely off guard and you open doors. You open doors that would not otherwise be open. Doors that could lead towards restitution. Doors that can lead towards your healing. Doors that can lead towards their salvation. And how much greater is their salvation compared to your revenge? The world looks at self-control completely opposite to the Bible. Society today, for the most part, practices self-control for selfish reasons. For example, in the secular world, you may have a boss who's a real jerk. But you hold your tongue because you know that boss holds the key to your promotion. In other words, you practice self-control to get something for yourself. But the Bible teaches not only to hold your tongue, but to pray for that boss who's a jerk. Also, the secular world, people hold their tongue in public settings to practice political correctness. Politicians excel at this because they're so afraid of what the people would think if they really said what they thought. As opposed to the Bible, which teaches us to love the sinner but hate the sin. Jesus was never politically correct. To coin a phrase, he called a spade a spade. And he did this not to dig up dirt on somebody, but he did this to draw others to God through repentance. Thirdly, society teaches us that it's okay to think it in your mind as long as you don't act on your thoughts. In other words, your fantasies do no harm. But the Bible teaches that the line between inappropriate fantasies and sin is non-existent. They're both two and the same things. Fourthly, society teaches that as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, what problem is it of yours? It's my life. But the Bible teaches us, don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother or sister's lives. In other words, your actions always affect those around you. You may be out for dinner with a friend, and that glass of wine to you, which is a social nicety, for that alcoholic friend you're with, could be the temptation that leads them back into sin. The world's view of self-control is mostly outward from an action viewpoint, but the Bible puts an equal importance on inward or spiritual self-control. God knows how much easier it is to practice outward self-control if you've got your inward side under control to start with. The problem with self-control is it's not that easy. Oh, sure, it's easy to control something you don't like in the first place. For instance, I don't like asparagus. So if somebody puts a plate of asparagus on the dinner table, man, it's easy for me not to uh, empty it onto my plate. In my opinion, a field of asparagus is a waste of perfectly good farmland. <laughs> but put a plate of Nanaimo bars or a lemon pie within arm's reach, and I'm, tell- I'm sweating. <laughs> I- I'm sweating. It just keeps calling my name, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. Satan is not stupid. He won't tempt us with something that's not a stumbling block for us. I don't know why some things are a stumbling block for one person, not another. Why what's a problem for me is not a problem to you and vice versa. Perhaps it goes back to Adam and Eve and their fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, did that take God's perfect creation and create us rather instead into a pool of tainted genes, a body 
and mind and soul and spirit instead of what God intended us for? Over the history of mankind, has our lack of self-control led to more and more unhealthy predispositions? I don't know. But it is only through God's love for his creation that he practiced self-control and didn't wipe us out. He wanted to. He said to Moses when he got fed up with the people wandering in the desert, his people, he said, I've had it with this stiff-necked group of people, Moses. Why don't I wipe them out? We'll start over. You and I, we'll start over. And I'll create a new nation for you to help me with. Moses talked to him and God changed his mind. God practiced his own self-control. He has made a way for us to overcome what is sin in our lives and to be justified that is made right so that we can have an eternity secured in heaven. Again, this goes back to our key verse, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and unworldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if God calls us to practice self-control, how do we do it? How do we practice self-control in a way that's beyond the outward self-control? How do we practice inward or spiritual self-control that leads to more effective outward self-control that is pleasing to God? After all, that's the reason why we as Christians practice this self-control, is to please God. It's not easy. The world, in some ways, has it easier, or so they think. So as Christians, we've got to be doing it for some reason. And we should be doing it to please God, the one who we love. And by extension, live the lives that God has intended us to live in the first place. Well, that leads us to the how-tos. And that's where our secret weapon comes in to help us in the battle of self-control. When you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ and give him control, an incredible thing happens. The third part of the Trinity comes into your life, not only into your life, but he becomes a part of your life. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit now dwells with inside of you. You now have an ally. It's a two against one when it comes to lack of self-control. Oh, some people in the secular world will say that uh, I've got a friend or a relative who helps me. But can that person be with you 24-7? Can that person, like the Holy Spirit, know you better than you know yourself? I don't think so. But in order for us to take full advantage of the power of the Holy Spirit to help us overcome temptations, you must give the Holy Spirit full control of your life. You see, there are no 12 easy steps to achieving self-control. Biblical self-control is not a DIY project. It's not something you can do solo. The result of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and somebody say it, self-control. This is the general outcome of the Spirit working in our life. Self-control as the fruit of the Spirit, though, is a bit of a paradox. You see, how can the ability to control oneself be the result of being controlled by somebody else? How can I control myself if I need the Holy Spirit to control me? 
It works because the two work together, not hand in hand. Think of it as a set of brakes on a vehicle. When you're rolling down the highway and you need to slow down or stop, what do you do? You put your foot on the brake pedal. But who's stopping the car? Is it you or is it the mechanics of the car? Who's stopping that vehicle? When you step on that pedal, you set in motion linkages, hydraulics, and friction. All you're doing is starting the process. But by keeping your foot on that pedal, you're also continuing the process. And that's where you and the Holy Spirit come together. Not separately, but together. Two people, two entities working together to bring about self-control. When we practice self-control, the first step for us is to put our foot on the brake pedal. But as a Christian, we don't have to be like Fred Flintstone. Remember those cartoons? That was one of my favorites when I was a kid growing up. I don't know if they still show it on TV, but it's great. Freddie Flintstone had a family sedan that he took his, uh, his wife and his daughter out on trips. His sedan had no floor in it. He used his feet to get himself going. And when he wanted to stop, he just dug his heels. That's one person practicing self-control. It ain't going to work in today's world. That's a, that's a cartoon. When we put our foot on the brake, the Holy Spirit will step in. And if we let him, he'll help us control our lives. He'll help us be in control of our lives. Of what needs controlling. It's like having holy, it's like having power brakes. Holy Spirit power brakes. You won't find that advertised on any car advertising. You know where they list all of the options? You won't find holy brakes. But as a Christian, it comes as standard equipment. If you let the Holy Spirit into your life. The problem is that many times we put our foot on the brake, but then we take our foot off the pedal, hoping or expecting the Holy Spirit to do the rest of the work. But it doesn't work that way. You have to stay as much a part of your life as you want the Holy Spirit to be in your life. We have to continue to do our part by keeping our foot on the brake pedal and use the power of the Holy Spirit to boost the self-control that we need and that we desire. When we become a Christian... We fully have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit fully have us? And often that's what it really boils down to. We need to let God's Spirit have control of our lives while at the same time remaining an active participant in that process. After the four Gospels and the book of the Acts, the New Testament is a record of correspondence. Paul wrote a lot of letters to the new churches that were starting by his and by other ministries. As well, letters were written by various workers and by workers whose commitment and missionary work helped start the New Testament church. A lot of these correspondences were to encourage Christians, but at times, these messages were to remind the new Christians about their role, their responsibility, about their lack of self-control. Romans 8, chapter Romans 8, verses 13 to 15 reads, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. 
But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That's the most deeply intimate name that the Bible has for God. Abba, Father. That's like crying out, Daddy. Perhaps it was because the Greek and the Roman societies had little self-control that they needed encouragement and practice. For instance, there was a, a term that I came across in several commentaries. And that term was Corinthian girl. And that term was a slang term for a prostitute. The whole society of Corinthians developed that slang attitude. Paul also instructed Titus on what needed to be addressed in his ministry with the Cretans. Titus chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke, rebuke them sharply, so they will be sound in their faith. Perhaps we have more in common with the early Christians than we like to think about. But a lot of the epistles, the letters to the various groups and churches, involve self-control in their content. Paul and others like Titus, Timothy, John, Peter, etc., they often had to remind the recipients of these letters that they needed to change their thoughts and actions now that they accepted the message of salvation. No longer were they to conform to the way the world thinks and acts because they were bought at a very steep price and as such were no longer slaves to the world. Their freedom was bought and its cost was high. With their newfound freedom from bondage of sin came a responsibility to live a life pleasing to God instead of pleasing to oneself. This would be a hard concept to grasp then, just as it is now. One would think that freedom would mean I can do what I want. But this never is really truly the case. Oh, sure, you can have freedom of movement, freedom of association, freedom to eat or drink what you want. But you can never have total freedom and yet live in an orderly, societal live in an orderly society. We need restrictions so we can cohabitate. Even with the freedoms we have, our actions can always have and will always have a profound impact on those around us. You can never truly have total freedom if you're living around other people. Even if you're living by yourself on an island, you still need restrictions. You still need self-control to stay healthy. To stay sane. When it comes to our actions, I believe there's only two options that influence our desire and our ability when it comes to self-control. Either you follow what the world has to say, or you follow what God in the Bible has to say. And if you're a Christian, you only have one option, and that's to follow what God has to say. Either you're influenced by the world or by God. If you're influenced by, a, by God, then you have no better way. You have no better choice since he's the one who rescued you and gave you the freedom from the sin that before had bound you to hell. Who else has the power to help you live a life that is not only pleasing to God, but to help you live a life to your fullest potential as a human being? 
That's the lesson the New Testament sought in all these letters to the new church. That's the lesson that we can take away here in the 21st century. I want to take a look at some examples of people who had good self-control. There was a lot of benefit to looking at people who got it wrong and what they did wrong. When I was a pilot, Transport Canada used to send out safety um, bulletins all the time. And they had a slogan. And the safety bulletins always started with with the same slogan. They said, learn from others' mistakes because you'll never live long enough to make them all yourself. And that's so true. But this morning I want to focus on people who got it right. Now, these people didn't always get it right. But let's look at the times that they did get it right. And I'm going to read some verses from the Bible and see if you can pick out not only who these people are, some of them are obvious because they're named, but pick out what the circumstance was in which they practiced good self-control. The first one comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 39. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Well, of course, that's the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. See, here was Joseph sold into slavery. And as a slave, he was singled out as a man who had a lot of good attributes when it came to running a household. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household. In fact, he put him in charge of everything. But of course, the one restriction was his wife. But Joseph was a handsome man. And Potiphar's wife took notice of that. And she made advances towards him. But Joseph, in practicing self-control, because he wanted to please God, said, no, that's not right. In the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 24, we have another example. See, my father, look at these pieces of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. As well as in 1 Samuel, chapter 26, Abishai said to David, Today God has given your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? But here, of course, the character is David. And what was his example of self-control? Saul, who was the king of Israel at that time, was searching and seeking David to kill him because he thought David was a threat to him. But David, in his wisdom and his desire to please God, even though he had opportunities, twice he had opportunities to kill Saul, once himself and once either himself or his uh, um, partner with him, had the opportunity to to kill Saul. And that would have been the end of it. I mean, that would have been the end of uh, the people looking for David. But David said, no, Saul is God's anointed. I'm not going to lay on a hand on him. David practiced self-control, even at the extent of keeping his life in danger. Here's an obvious one from the book of Ruth. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know you are a woman of noble character. 
Here's Ruth, who was in pretty dire straits. I mean, she was living with her mother-in-law alone. They had very little to eat. They were in the midst of a, of a tough time. And she could have used her feminine attributes to get what she needed, what she desired. But instead, she practiced self-control and restraint. And she did things in a very noble way. She did, thing in a, she did things in a way that resulted in self-respect for her. Today, it's so easy to fall prey towards getting what you want at all costs and losing your self-respect in the process. But here's an example of one woman, and Boaz as well, who did not take advantage of her, who got it right in God's eyes. In the book of Matthew, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, here's an example of self-control. Joseph was, in all essence, married to Mary. But the two of them knew that the baby growing within Mary's body was special, was from God. And Joseph practiced his own self-control in that he did not take any liberties until after Jesus was born. Here's an obvious one. There's three examples here. Also from the book of Matthew. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Secondly, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Thirdly, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Of course, here's the example of Jesus being tempted. Jesus has gone through everything that you've gone through. He's gone through it successfully. He was here on this earth. He did not sin. He had no sin within him. He took our sin upon the cross, but he never sinned. Here's perhaps the ultimate example of self-control. Also in the book of Matthew, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus was in agony at this time. He knew what was coming. But in his own self-control, he held back. And he let God's will take control of his life. Again, back to our key verse. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It says to us, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great, of our God, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to end this morning with this key verse. This verse is aptly suitable to being a key verse because it ticks off a lot of boxes that are necessary to be a key verse. Number one, it states what self-control accomplishes in that you say no to ungodly and worldly possessions. We are in the world, but we are not of it. Secondly, it states who the verse pertains to. It pertains to all those who have attained salvation through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it states why we need to practice self-control. And that is, as part of a package, we are given instructions on what to do in the present age, that is, the church age that we now live in. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And fourthly, it states how long we are to continue doing this. And that is until the second appearing of Jesus Christ happens. 
When that happens, the Bible says we will be instantly changed and we will no longer need to practice things like self-control because we won't be here in this world. We'll be standing face to face with God's holiness. I know self-control is not an easy task, but it's a vital task if we are to live to lives, if we are to live lives that are pleasing to God. Often, self-control is not a linear, it's not a straight line event. Sometimes the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line. In uh, marine navigation or aeronautical navigation, the distance between point A and B is not a straight line, but it's actually a great circle route because you're following the circumference of the earth. And a lot of times that's what our life is. It's not a straight line journey. It's a journey that has a lot of curves to it. And it's a journey that requires a lot of self-control. It's a journey that requires us to have an ally, the Holy Spirit. We need to look at our life as a great circle route whose destination is ultimately heaven. Let's uh, close in prayer and then I'll invite the praise team to come up for our final hymn. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this time that we spent together. I thank you for the time that I spent with you in preparation. Lord, I pray most of all that all these things that are so aptly taught in your Bible are burned inside of our heart, are hidden in our heart, not that we would keep them secret, but that we would have them to use to help us through this world as we toil for you, as we seek to carry out your will. Help us, Lord, to be self-controlled in all aspects of our life. Forgive us on those days when we stumble. Forgive us when temptation overcomes us. And help us up again, Lord, to brush ourselves off and continue down that path you've put us on. Help us as well, Lord, as we go forth this morning, as we leave these doors and enter into our own mission worlds, that we would be able to speak about you, not in such a way that others would want to stay away from you, but in such a way, Lord, that we can show how your love is meant for all those, for all mankind, for all those who accept you. And I pray, Lord, that when we come back a week from now, that we will come back and say, it was good to be with the Lord. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.